a Radio 191 FM podcast. Mr. Speaker. All right, it is time for politics here on Radio 191 FM. Morena, John. Kiara Koto. How are you going today, mate? Yeah, not too bad. Marvellous. Absolutely marvellous. Uh, all right, a couple of things to cover this morning. We're going to start with the housing crisis. The Labour lead coalition uh, has made a lot of promises when it comes to the housing crisis. Um, but have any really come to fruition? Clearly, uh, the key um, program, Kiwi Build, uh, has been a complete disaster. Um, and I think the fact that um, Phil Twyford has been dropped from being Minister of Housing by Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern points to what a disaster this programme has actually been. Um, um, the whole basis of Kiwi Build is basically to use market forces and the, the private um, housing industry to, to build uh, so-called affordable houses. Um, somehow by magic, that uh, uh, with, with m- minimal um, government investment and intervention, uh, somehow the government is, able, is going to be able to push industry to produce all these affordable houses. Now, we're still talking about houses 500,000 plus, um, but uh, supposedly be sold below market, um, current market rates. Um, the policy clearly hasn't worked, and it hasn't, clearly hasn't been very well Thought out, like uh, um, alongside Kiwi Build, uh, the government has expanded the building of state houses or social housing, um, and has had a, um, a projection of building about uh, 1,600 houses a year. That's actually below what uh, na- National promised uh, before the last election, um, and it's also below what. Uh, um, various uh, social organisations say is, is needed nearly to meet uh, increased demand. So Salvation Army, for example, has said that um, the figure of 1,600 new state houses a year is completely inadequate. At least 2,000 need to be built a year um, just to meet uh, increased demand. So clearly in the areas of both social state housing and uh, housing for middle income and upper income New Zealanders in the terms of Kiwi build, uh, both policies uh, seem to be at least inadequate and certainly in terms of Kiwi build, that project seems to have completely failed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It looks like they're going to well revamp, I guess, or try to revitalise. Um, but Twyford, um, you know, can we f- fully blame him? Is it really Phil's fault or was it just destined to never work uh, the way they had it all planned out? Um, he was Minister of Housing, uh, so uh, clearly he had uh, day-to-day control over Kiwi Build and other housing policies, so he has to hold responsibility. But I think there is a general consensus now within the media and across the political spectrum that Kiwi Build was uh, a dud to start off with, a dog all the time, and that um, uh, it wasn't very well thought out. The policy actually changed um, over time. So uh, going right back to David Cunliffe, the, the initial idea of the policy was for um, far more government intervention uh, and investment uh, where the government would actually own 
the houses initially and then sell them off. Uh, that was watered down to a point where what we've got now uh, is Kiwi Build, where it's all uh, private industry led, uh, and private industry um, owns the houses that are built, whatever company is building uh, those houses, and then sells them off. Um, there is some government investment, um, uh, and there is some government intervention, but it's very much meant to be industry led. So the policy has transformed uh, to a point where, um, yeah, it's far more of a right of centre policy, economic policy, um, and it, but it clearly hasn't worked. Um, and yes, so Phil Twyford is to blame, but uh, the, the Labour Party as a whole has to hold responsibility for this policy. Um, can Megan Woods ride in on a white horse and save the day? I think, uh, can she say Kiwiville? Well, in its current form, no, because it is such a dud. And it, it, again, it relies on um, private industry and market forces to solve a problem that um, the market uh, isn't really interested in. And, um, the market's all about, um, and private industry is all about making um, profits um, in, in as much profits as possible. Um, and the previous national government uh, relied on market forces to deal with the housing problem. Um, uh, that didn't work. Uh, Labour uh, is pushing forward a bit more government intervention, but again, it's relying on market forces, which isn't working. So the interesting thing will be, will Megan Woods uh, push for a completely due policy? If, uh, now that she is Minister of Housing. And that's a possibility. Megan was certainly to possibly the most left-wing MP uh, in the Labour Party caucus, um, if not in Parliament as a whole. Um, remember, she used to be an Alliance member um, and then stood under Jim Anderton's Progressive Party, which was a split-off from the Alliance. So she comes from a more firm left-wing background. Um, uh, she's also uh, got a PhD um, and, and did her um, um, doctorate um, thesis looking at issues of housing and infrastructure. So she's certainly a very smart cookie. Um, and looking back at the amount of time she spent uh, researching this issue, she's obviously got a personal investment in the questions of housing and infrastructure and urban development. So, but will her. Um, colleagues hold her back from pushing a more left-wing agenda and I'd argue more than likely yes uh, uh, especially with Grant Robertson being Minister of Finance uh, uh, the amount of um, legislation and uh, investment in terms of billions and billions and billions of dollars that are really needed to even make a dent into the housing crisis I, I don't think that's a goer for Jacinda Ardern and Grant Robertson well, if they're not willing to do it, how is the crisis ever going to be solved? Well, arguably it won't be. Um, uh, 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 there will be continued um, um, turning out of um, um, limited numbers of state housing. There is the Salvation Army has pointed out are completely inadequate. Um, and uh, what else can be done? Um, who knows? I mean... Uh, the argument is, even from people like um, Matthew Hutton, who's definitely economically on the right, is that if the government really wants to deal with this problem, it needs to borrow um, 
billions and billions of dollars, and this is the right time to borrow, um, interest rates are at all-time low, and states can get the best deals, governments can get the best deals in terms of borrowing money because they're such huge um, institutions. Um, so the type of solutions that are even being proposed on the right by the likes of Matthew Hutton for massive investment in infrastructure and housing by the government, uh, uh, it, it just, just doesn't look like um, this government with its very conservative fiscal responsibility rules would be prepared to go down that avenue. All right, it's election ne- year next year. Now, national, the National Party, they've offered their expertise uh, to the Labour government, but wasn't it then that kind of got us to this point? Yeah, and they didn't even admit that there was a housing crisis. So um, if you're going to give Labour any kudos, it's certainly uh, on the point that they have pushed the idea that there is, in fact, a housing crisis that needs to be dealt with. And now National has taken on that language itself. Um, So that's something that, in terms, in the realm of ideas and ideology, Labour has definitely led a shift in the discussion. National is, um, well, in the last election they were proposing slightly um, more state houses, social houses to be built under a national-led government, um, so 2,000 rather than the 1,600 that have been built a year by this Labour-led government. Um, but again, their, their solutions rely on the market and on private industry, um, and where we, the market and private industry have failed to deal with this crisis. Um, and, private industry will probably say, well, it's not their business to deal with this crisis. Their business is to merely um, meet demand um, and and make profits. Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, So, I mean, yeah. One would think that private entities would be chomping at the bit to get into this and start building because there will be massive profits. Yeah, uh, well, um, uh, the reality is that private industry are building um, large amounts of houses, uh, far more than the state, and uh, far surpassing whatever's been built by Kiwi Build. Um, but but these houses tend to be aimed at um, upper income levels, middle yeah. income to upper income levels. Um, uh, trying to build houses for people, say, on benefits on very low income um, uh, would mean... Um, building houses below, selling them below cost, so basically effectively losing money, which of course no business. So that points to the need for, um, in terms of um, housing for lower income people, uh, the only solution seems to be uh, massive state intervention. Yep, yep, so maybe a return to the good old days of the 50s. Yeah, or even go, yeah, going back to the 30s with the first Labour government, um, and, and certainly, yeah, the the third Labour government of Kirk uh, as well did, did uh, invest significant amounts of money um, in organisation into the building of social housing. But, yeah, this, this government is very high in rhetoric. This new Labour-led coalition government is very high in rhetoric, uh, especially talking about making housing affordable for all New Zealanders and leading a transformation uh, in the area of, of housing and infrastructure. But it just doesn't seem to be able to deliver. Would um, massive state intervention here, would that be a vote killer? It, I guess it, it would, it would, it could be. Um, I mean, we've had decades now where the ethos that, that the private realm is the only area that can 
that can truly uh, produce wealth uh, and growth uh, has sort of become internalised in the minds of um, a large proportion of the electorate. Of course, with the, going back to the global financial crisis, there was a, uh, a breakdown of that ideology, that sort of uh, um, the, the market-centred ideology. Uh, but nonetheless, um, the, the fact that this government is so scared to break uh, with the ethos that, that the government needs to spend within very confined limits, needs to concentrate on paying off debt, um, needs to be financially uh, um, uh, neutral in terms of uh, not increasing overall uh, taxation, maybe changing how taxes are um, uh, gathered, uh, but not actually increasing the amount of um, money that the state is drawing in. So this government in, in and of itself is very scared to step outside the perimeters of what is seen as acceptable within orthodox economic views. All right. Well, you know, it's a big crisis. I can't see it being solved anytime soon. Let's move on to the second story. Um, Trump has visited the Hermit Kingdom, <laughs> yes. uh, becoming the first sitting US president to do so. How significant is it? I think it's hugely significant. Um, it, uh, I mean, I guess with relationships between North Korea and America, those personal relationships are crucial with, with North Korea, of course, being a, a, a hermit kingdom in a, um, a, a one-man dictatorship with a cult around uh, um, the leading family. Um, any negotiations have to centre on that one-on-one -on -one relationship between leaders. Um, and, yeah, Trump stepping foot over into North Korea uh, will be hugely symbolic for the, the, the ruling elite in North Korea. And it's a real coup for them as well and uh, promoting their place in the world and their place within um, East Asia. So, yeah, I think it is significant. Um, and, and I guess it shows that uh, both leaders are open uh, on the face to it to compromise and to further discussion. Um, and certainly the North Korean regime has indicated it is prepared to give up nuclear uh, weapons and its nuclear weapons program. Um, uh, we should be sceptical about that, uh, but um, the rhetoric uh, is pointing in that direction of some form of concrete um, compromise. Uh, being met in the near future. Um, but this this is the third time they've met, and there's been talk about um, you know North Korea giving up their arms before. Um, but we saw talks break down in February. We've seen missile launches. We've seen tests done. Um, nothing's really come of any chat so far. So can we really you know do we really think North Korea are playing? A fair game here, or, or are they just trying to get a photo op? I, I think both. I think uh, a lot of this has to do with um, propaganda and political theatre. Um, but uh, one concrete thing that North Korea did do was was actually um, uh, dismantle, blow up one of its, its um, main uh, testing sites for nuclear weapons. Uh, so that was certainly significant. Um, from North Korea's point of view, I guess it's a risky game uh, when they look at how geopolitics have played out in, in terms of um, America's power in the world. Uh, the fact that North Korea has nuclear weapons does actually protect it 
from, say, um, an American invasion or the, the threat of um, imposed regime change. Uh, so we are, if we look back at the last Obama government where there was all that policy of regime change, and we saw that with, with Libya, uh, with America intervening in various ways to bring about the downfall of um, Gaddafi, uh, and and even with Syria initially, um, uh, with Hillary Clinton part of um, Obama's camp, that there was a push for regime change as well. No, no regime in America really talked about regime change in North Korea, and a lot of it comes down to the fact of North Korea's nuclear capacity. So if they if they were to give up their nuclear weapons, it obviously opens them up to a threat uh, from. Um, America and its allies in East Asia. Uh, so I guess North Korea needs very concrete assurances that um, dismantling its nuclear arsenal isn't going to lead to the threat of future invasion and a push for regime change. Well, I mean, North Korea's also got China on their side. Yeah, to a limited degree, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're formerly an ally, uh, but China um, often gets um, really pissed off with North Korea. Uh, the, the relations between the two countries are very um, frosty, and um, um, China, to a certain degree, has supported sanctions against North Korea as well. So it's certainly um, China is not a firm ally of um, of North Korea, and uh, yeah, and, and that's possibly another reason why North Korea is actually open to negotiations with the Trump administration, because in the background, that is what China is pushing for itself. What does this all mean for Trump? Um, you know, how how is he looking to his supporters through this? Or and um, what about his political opponents? I think for his supporters, it, it, it feeds into the idea that uh, Trump is a brilliant negotiator. Hmm. He's a very astute politician, but also he's a bit of a maverick. So he doesn't play by the traditional rules of of um, of foreign negotiations, for example, and uh, foreign affairs uh, that he's prepared to um, uh, go out alone and try and strike a deal with, say, the North Koreans. Um, also, um, although many many people on the left and liberals present Trump as some sort of nutty American imperialist warmonger, the fact is that the platform he stood on when he became president was very much one of American isolationism. Americans should, America shouldn't be uh, trying to overthrow regimes in the Middle East, say, or um, uh, send um, um, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops to, to intervene in conflicts in the world. He was very much opposed uh, or showed opposition uh, to um, George W. Bush's uh, Iraq war. So for a lot of its supporters, uh, this, this backs up um, uh, their support for the idea of a more isolationist America. Um, maybe they'll become the next hermit kingdom. <laughs> um, well, you know, will this look good? Um, you know, we're not that far away from an election. Well, we are, but, they're, you know, they're already starting to, um, to make moves. Uh, mm. different people within the game um, you know is this going to really endear Trump to the voters is this going to really help him at the next election I think so um, uh, especially if he can get something concrete uh, from these negotiations some sort of concrete deal uh, which isn't going to be uh, the complete uh, denuclearization of um, North Korea 
but um, whether it's a superficial document or not, I think we'll get some type of concrete document that will indicate a, a move towards denuclearization. Remember, at the same time, while Trump's being supposedly soft on North Korea, uh, he's being very hard on Iran. Mm -hmm. on the face of it. So he's playing this game where he's showing himself as uh, astute um, superpower leader who um, can play the game of, of, of holding up the carrot and uh, beating his opponents with a stick. But even with Iran, um, it, it, it's fascinating how Trump has shown how hesitant he is really for military intervention. So where there were going to be um, a military response to uh, Iran's uh, allegedly um, sinking of certain oil tankers, uh, foreign countries' oil tankers, uh, Trump pulled back at the last minute. So to me that shows that Trump is a far more reluctant uh, president to military intervene in the world, far less so than, say, the previous Obama administration, and certainly Hillary Clinton, uh, who was very much a... Uh, a regime change, Vice yes. President. Yes, she certainly, she certainly was um, hoping to be. Anyway, um, it, he actually looks really good, right? Like what he did in Iran, uh, how he did pull out at, at the end because of you know thinking the loss of lives life would mm. be too too great. And then this meeting with Kim, another one. He actually looks really great. It's really presidential. Yeah, and um, I think you can see parallels in some ways going back to Nixon, uh, the Nixon <laughs> presidency. That was seen as quite, um, which was loathed by people on the left and liberals, uh, and, and um, certainly uh, there were many war crimes carried out by that Nixon regime in, in, in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. Uh, however, um, it was Nixon who um, brought about uh, effectively um, a friendship some degree with China, um, with the with the Mao-led regime in China, um, and, and so in, in a way that this right-wing conservative leader Nixon uh, was prepared to compromise and bring about um, substantial peace agreements uh, and, and, and future trade agreements with China. Maybe Trump will be playing the same role in many ways. There's so many similarities. There's so many similarities between those two administrations. <laughs> <laughs> well, in many ways, they're, they're, you could say they're quite amoral characters. Uh, um, the, the, their personal behaviour and uh, personal and political beliefs for many are, are toxic, uh, but they both seem very flexible, pragmatic characters as well uh, that, that, that can um, come up with very surprising policies and initiatives. Indeed. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you, John. It's okay. A pleasure. Talk to you again tomorrow morning. For sure. Have a wonderful day. You too. See you, mate. This was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.